Hello and welcome to the Royal College of Psychiatrists podcast with me, Ella Marchant. For LGBT Plus History Month, we have two wonderful speakers on the podcast. First, we have Dr Elliot Carthy, a psychiatrist and YouTuber who creates content educating people on mental health and reacting to popular shows like Scrubs and 13 Reasons Why. Next up, we have Cole. Cole is a transgender man and an education manager working in Leeds. He will be sharing his experience of psychosis and the kind of help he received in the mental health services. Both Elliot and Cole will be discussing how we can take practical steps to make mental health services better for the LGBT plus community. Dr Elliot begins by describing what it's like to be openly gay and working in psychiatry. I think I think right now, actually, I find psychiatry to be a very welcoming and opening place, at least for a gay person like I am. Um, but history, we haven't always been on the right side of history. To put it to put it mildly, um, I think so. I, I started this YouTube channel probably a couple of years ago. Just dabbled in things a little bit because I've, I've always thought that psychiatry doesn't have quite a, a big enough presence on on social media, really, which is where information is, is shared now. And I think we've kind of got to keep up a little bit more to make sure that we're spreading the reality of what we do rather than people still believing that we we practice in the way that we maybe practiced 30 or 40 years ago. Um, and I think that. I think that psychiatry does have a bit of a complex relationship with the LGBT plus community. You know, we have medicalized homosexuality for a long period of time. You know, it was, it was actually only a few decades ago that we stopped doing that. Um, and, and I think we haven't always been on the right side of history. And I think it's important that we acknowledge our mistakes from the past and we learn from them. And the only way we do that is by, by being transparent about things. Absolutely. Is this what inspired you to start talking about psychiatry on YouTube? In part, I think that there's a lot of, YouTube's a weird place. There's a lot of opinions on there, a lot of opinions that can be masquerading as fact. Um, there's a lot of pseudoscience that's out there as well. And I think it's kind of our duty as, as doctors and, and scientists as well to make sure that we're spreading truth and accuracy and evidence-based information. And I noticed that Sakaji didn't have much of a presence on YouTube. And that even comes down to, to learning about the science side of things and studying for and studying for exams you know there's lots of you know surgeons and medics and other types of, of physicians on there that are teaching concepts but there wasn't anything with psychiatry so there was a massive gap um, and I suppose in my small way that's what I'm trying to address really is taking simple concepts of, around mental health and psychiatry that might be in the media or might be common talking points and just trying to explain the evidence base behind it that combats some of the, the misinformation that's out there. I do love how on your YouTube channel you have uh, slightly less serious videos where you're talking about like Netflix series and then yeah. you have actually very educational videos which is why why would psychiatry be good for you why would you step forward um, into psychiatry as a discipline etc etc and I, I think even when I'm watching sort of stuff that's on Netflix or on TV and, and, and talking about it at the same time I suppose I'm trying to get people to take away that they have an understanding of, of what depression is or what psychosis actually is, but in a slightly lighthearted way, because I think that's where a lot of people get their information about uh, about mental health and psychiatry at the moment. It comes from the media, it comes from social media as well, it comes from news articles, and I think it's important that we can use those as examples to try and, and, and link those to some of the maybe the, the drier scientific concepts, but we use that to explain it with some degree of accuracy, I hope. Yeah, completely. I think a lot of people experience their first experiences of psychiatry might be TV shows like Hannibal, for example. 
Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And I think that what we know is that more and more people are going to come into contact with a psychiatrist at some point or have somebody very close to them that is in contact with a psychiatrist. And I think a lot of people, even when, when I speak to people, when I, I see people on call and things like that, still don't have quite an accurate representation of what we do right now. They worry that if you're going to see a psychiatrist that we're automatically going to section people or that our intention is just to give out more and more medications or that things like electroconvulsive therapy is still done really liberally in, in, in psychiatric wards, which is all stuff from, from decades ago. Even then, that's a bit hammed up from what the reality was. And I suppose I'm trying to use some of these common scenarios that people watching stuff on, on TV and Netflix to try and, and teach about what the accurate depiction of, of psychiatric care is right now to try and alleviate some of that fear and anxiety that if, if you do need to see a psychiatrist we're here to try and help you not just to restrict your liberty. Yeah completely I think in the UK there is still a belief that if you're interacting with any kind of mental health professional uh, in a way you're perhaps broken whereas in certain states in America it would be seen as very regular and very routine to see a mental health professional. I think particularly with therapy, you're right, and I think people seeing a therapist routinely maybe is a little bit more of a common thing in the States than it is here. Um, but but I think there is a lot of fear that people have about, about seeing a psychiatrist, about what label is going to be put on them, about, you know, I, are, are they going to let me go home or are they going to make me stay in and and what the, what the future looks like as well. And I hope that just by trying to be a little bit more present on social media, a little bit more lighthearted, but at the same time, try and be evidence based and accurate that it takes some of that fear away and that our specialty is looked at in the same way that other medical specialties are looked at that ideally psychiatry as a specialty is looked at in the same way that that cardiology is looked at or, or gastroenterology or pediatrics for example and do you find that working in mental health is a place where you can be open and be yourself from my own personal experience of, of working as a, as a psychiatrist, yes. Um, I've, I've never encountered any issues with, with colleagues and things like that about being open about my sexuality. Um, I think that as a psychiatrist, you are you are speaking to people and they're most psychologically vulnerable that perhaps they've ever been in their life. And you meet people that have been through all different uh, types of trauma, all different walks of life from so many different cultures. And I think uh, we will be very bad at our job if we weren't open about trying to empathise with those people and those experiences, even if they're, they're alien to us on a personal level. So I, I've only had positive things to have experienced. I, I, I think other people, I can't speak for other people, um, and, and I hope that anybody that's had an interaction with me also feels that um, they've been able to be open with me about whatever it is that's, uh, that they're struggling with. And what would you like to change about mental health services for the LGBTQ community? Mm, so, so specifically for the LGBTQ community, we need to build trust with the community because at the moment and if you look at surveys and stuff that come out from Stonewall there you know there was one uh, about a staff attitude survey that came out about the NHS a few years ago a lot of people from our community don't trust us they don't trust it's a safe place they, they don't trust that we know how to handle LGBTQ plus specific health issues and because they don't trust us it's difficult for them to be open and if they're not open with us it makes it difficult for us as a profession to know where 
our community sits in terms of a risk with mental health. We know that people are not, there's higher rates of depression and anxiety and substance misuse within the LGBTQ plus community than the general population. We know that, but it's very difficult to put numbers to that. It's very difficult to then get accurate data around those things and to then try and do trials to, to improve our care and to make things better. So I think before we can do much, we have to build trust. And that happens on an individual level in every consultation we have. I think that very simple things could be done. So for example, when you sign up, when you're coming in through A&E, for example, if you need to see a psychiatrist, there's a blank space. There, sh there should be a blank space for you to put your pronouns in, just in the same way that you can choose what your title is and write down what your name is. You should be allowed to put your pronouns in without having to be asked or prompted for it so that you don't get misgendered. You know, we should be having gender neutral bathrooms, which requires absolutely no change in infrastructure, just change the sign. And I think just simple gestures like that, hopefully try and convey the idea that it's it's a safe space for our, for people from the, from the community. I think on a more specialist level as well, I would like to see more integrated services between different parts of medicine. I remember being a medical student and going to a place called Dean Street in Soho on my sexual health rotation. And it's an HIV and, and sexual health clinic. And it was incredible. This is going back, you know, six or seven years now, where they had a lot to do with sexual health. There was a bit to do with substance misuse and addiction. There was, you know, a lot of psychological support that was there all under one roof. And I would like to see that become a more commonplace thing where at the same time, we can have psychiatrists that have got an interest in mental health needs in our community with addiction specialists, with sexual health specialists that can all sit in one room and be able to share their expertise to try and support patients in a much wider and broader range. Um, that's my idealistic view. Unfortunately, with privatization of things like addiction services, it's, it's difficult to make that reality at the moment, but that's my that's my pie in the sky dream. Could you explain a little bit more about what you mean by integrated services for those that might not know what that means? You know, usually whenever you see somebody from a mental health team, it's never just one person's opinion that will inform your care. You know, you will have a psychiatrist, but there's usually meetings where, you know, a psychologist might be consulted or a social worker or an occupational therapist and things like that. We, we work in a multidisciplinary way. And I think we know within the LGBTQ plus community, if we look at some of the specific health needs, we know there's higher rates of mental illness, there's higher rates of depression, there's higher rates of anxiety. We know there's higher rates of substance misuse, so drug and alcohol misuse. And actually the pattern of drug use is, is sometimes quite unique within our community when we think about things like chemsex, for example. And then we've also got the sexual health needs that are quite different to outside our community as well. And these things are all linked in with each other. So it would be nice if there was a service that had expertise in all of these areas. And there's this sort of teamwork throughout medicine, all of which is specialised and catered towards the LGBTQ plus community and their health needs. It makes me feel very special when you mention occupational therapists because both my parents do that. So it makes me feel kind of warm inside for yeah, some reason. <laughs> okay, so thank you so much, Dr. Elliot. It was so lovely to speak to you. We'll come back to you soon. And up next, we have Cole. And I'm so happy to have you on the podcast, Cole. I'm very excited to be here. <laughs> so could you please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your experiences with mental health services? So I'm Cole, um, I'm a 24-year-old uh, transgender man, um, and I know with my experiences within the mental health services, I have been extremely privileged um, in that I've had mostly positive personal experiences, but I have also had um, experiences with, you know, with friends, with family, where I know they haven't had the best experiences either. One of my, you know, one of my most positive experiences is with my own family GP. I've been, you know, with this GP since moving back from university. 
um, and she'd taken over my primary care um, for my gender clinic, um, as well as any bloods that needed doing. And I felt like after I left university and moved back to the north, back to Leeds, I didn't feel like I had any purpose. You know, it was very difficult to find a job. You know, I just got this, you know, incredible degree for a really, a really great university. And there was just nothing out there that I could apply to. Um, and then adding on top, moving back in with, with parents is very difficult um, on young people as well, because you've gone from having all this independence to having to live back like you're you're a child again and I think that really affected me in a way that that I didn't have the autonomy that I had at university as I'd become so independent that I felt that I was slightly trapped and then adding you know being transgender into that and finding out who I am as a person you know starting my transition it, it, it was a very difficult time and so the first person I went to was my GP initially getting getting that GP appointment was very very difficult you do have to go through the receptionist who may not be as you know trained on on these matters you know and it and it took my my mum you know brilliant person um to actually say to the receptionist if something is not done today there will be a medical emergency on on your hands so I do expect to see a doctor today and that's really how my um, mental health journey, real mental health journey started as I had already been um, with therapists, you know, throughout school, throughout university. Um, but this is when it, it was a time in my life when I really needed that help to pull me from rock bottom, really. Yeah, aren't moms the best? Oh, truly, honestly, <laughs> all, all, of, all of my friends say everybody needs, you know, my mum. She's absolutely brilliant. Um, and if, if if it wasn't for her, you know, I wouldn't have have received that, you know, that incredible help that I did. And I don't and I don't know at what place or where I would be today without without her doing that for me. And am I right in thinking that when you did see a psychiatrist, it was largely a good experience? You mentioned when we were emailing each other that it was a consultation that happened in your living room. Yes. Yeah, so the basic backstory is, of course, moved back from university, mental health started to deteriorate, you know, with the loss of autonomy, with, with the loss of feeling like I had no purpose. And I started hearing voices, I started hallucinating and feeling generally like somebody was watching me constantly, which, of course, is, you know, is the very early signs of psychosis. And having a parent who had worked in the NHS for a very long time, these were all red flags to her. Um, so they both sat me down and said, we need to ring a doctor for you. So, of course, I went to the GP the next day, spoke to her about everything that had gone on. The main aim was to ensure that I felt safe and I felt supported. as She had supported me for quite, you know, up to a year at that point, uh, this, uh, the family GP. And then within the first two weeks, uh, you know, from that appointment, two weeks later, I had a psychiatrist um, sat in my living room as I felt this was the best place for me to begin that journey. Somewhere where I felt comfortable um, and somewhere where I could be free to, you know, have a cry or, or open up as it was my own personal space, which she ensured was something that I felt throughout our sessions as well. Thank you so much for sharing that with us, Cole. Were you experiencing um, a, an episode of psychosis? Yes. So um, basically what they concluded after going through the initial assessment, after going through those chats, there was there was that, that diagnosis of 
you know, that really early stage psychosis, which was quite scary to hear, especially at, you know, the age of 21. So I, I was just really glad that I had finally found some answers as to why I was feeling the way that I was feeling um, and not and not being embarrassed or ashamed about it, really. And um, how did you arrive at the point of enlisting mental health services? And did you have encouragement from your friends and your family? Of course, I've already talked about your mom. Did you have friends that were experiencing a similar thing? Yes. So being part of the transgender community, we have, you know, circles and friends everywhere, all over the country. But especially where, where I live in Leeds, there's such a big transgender community who I felt I could really turn to. Um, I have friends who have gone through the mental health services, who have both had good and bad experiences. And so they were there to fully support me. But also my uh, my siblings, they were real, a real catchment for me. They they really, you know, caught me when, when I felt like I was falling. Um, I have, you know, an older sister who I am where joint at the hip basically um, and she's she's always been there for me to to chat about mental health too and I feel like we have a very good two-way corridor for conversation in regards to our mental health because I know especially in these times that talking about mental health is so important at the moment. What do you think you would change about the mental health services for the LGBTQ community? I think from my own personal experiences um, before initially getting that appointment with my family GP, I was put forward to another GP who instantly said to me, oh, you're having these issues because you're transgender. And I think there is that, like um, doc, Dr. Elliot was saying, that everything is medicalized because you're because you're gay or because you're bisexual, because you're transgender. That is the reason why you're mentally ill. Whereas, in fact, it's so much more complex than that. People are complex. Um, and I feel like that, I don't know whether there needs to be some sort of training to say these things aren't, you know, they may affect somebody's mental health, especially about coming out, coming to terms with their gender dysphoria, you know, family issues at home, or generally just feeling uncomfortable within themselves. But there is more to people than just their sexuality or their gender. And it's not always the cause of their mental health issues. Um, I think what they could also do, I, you know, I, I'm not sure, I'm not a psychiatrist, but is there something within, you know, training for LGBTQ plus people in, in, in psychiatry for, for them to learn about the community and kind of the history of the community so then they can feel and, you know, empathise with, with what the community is also currently going through. I think as well, I think just in general, what I've changed about the mental health services is accessibility. Again, you know, I have friends who have quite complex mental health needs and it's very difficult for them to access any help whatsoever because they're, you know, they're taken to one mental health team and then they're told, actually, your your case is too severe for us. Please speak to these people. But then when they go to the next mental health team, they're sent back to, to the original team because their case again, is too severe. So they've just been constantly passed round, you know, and as a person who's had good experiences, it's very difficult for me to sit and watch people I know go through that, especially those I know who are also having issues with their sexuality and also their, their gender dysphoria. Um, so I think those are the changes that, that I would make to the mental health services. Absolutely. It must be extremely confusing and there must be a loss of trust there when you get taken from one specialist to another. 
Yes, most definitely. You know, I completely trusted my, you know, my psychiatrist 100%. I think she found out more than anything about, you know, anyone has ever got to know about me, really getting into the depth of things. And being transgender wasn't a big thing for her. She was really trying to get to the bottom of why I didn't feel like I had a purpose or I didn't, or I felt like, um, you know, I wasted my time at university and that I, that I, you know, just possibly couldn't live anymore. But I feel like with a lot of LGBTQ plus people, again, there is that, you know, that many of them, you know, unfortunately have come from family homes or backgrounds where they're just not accepted. So they're not not as confident to open up about their own thoughts and feelings and, and how and how that is affecting their mental health, because they feel once they open up, um, you know, that they're going to be shot back down or they're going to be told, oh, it's because you're gay or it's because you're you're transgender or it's because you're a lesbian. Um, and I feel like that's just where minds need to change. There needs to be this open conversation between psychiatrists and the LGBTQ, LGBTQ plus community for them to feel this is a this is a two-way corridor. We are, you know, psych psychiatrists are doing their best, as Dr. Elliot, Elliot was saying, to be more open um, and to be more accessible. But I also believe that as a community, we do also need to open up and talk about our, our mental health issues. May that be online, may that be on forums, you know, going to different events at work. So I feel that there needs to be just more openness in, in regards to mental health overall. If people could take away one thing from listening to the podcast today, what would it be? I feel like what they could take away is, again, what 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 Dr. Elliot was saying about that about being open and also to the for, for psychiatrists but also for the LGBTQ plus community to be more open reach out to your friends who you know um who, who you know are who are struggling especially in times of COVID um but who you know who've, who've been struggling for a long while it takes you know a couple of seconds to send a text to somebody and I'm sure that would mean the world to them even if they didn't answer for a week because uh, we all we've all been there where we're just too exhausted mentally to even reply to a text um i think what they should also take away is that there are people out there who have had good experiences so please you know use them to you know comment on on a post of theirs or or tweet them or you know dm them on on instagram any way you can get to talk to them and say is it okay if we if i ask you questions about your experience with the mental health services just to give that bit of confidence back to the community as well thank you so much cole it's been so nice to speak to you and cole and elliot it would be really nice if you if you had any questions for each other yeah cole that was thank you for being so open about your experiences that um that felt, that felt like a bit of a roller coaster listening to it let alone what you must have actually gone through yourself um, and I think you're right in that I've heard from a lot of other people that they're worried that there'll be cause and effect attributed to their, their sexuality or their gender identity and whatever their, their mental health crisis or difficulty is at that moment, that it's going to be caused by that. Um, and I suppose it kind of goes back to what I was saying before in that we, we really need to try and have a better understanding of what risk our community sort of poses towards mental health and that's not just the sexuality or the gender identity that's the the social stigma that's the the isolation that's the the prejudice and everything that comes with it um and sometimes the 
the broader identity crises that people are going through that, that spread beyond just sexuality and gender identity. So I, I completely agree with what you were saying. Uh, uh, my, my first question for you, Cole, is talks about trying to increase accessibility and openness. But on a practical level, what do you think we can change in healthcare settings in general to make people that are LGBTQ plus feel safer when they enter the building? What simple gestures can we do to try and help people feel a little bit more comfortable when they enter the building so that we can try and foster some degree of trust and openness? Really great question. I think for for me personally, I don't want the mental health services or the hospital to be performative, you know, because we, we there is so many, you know, many trusts, many businesses, many companies who have this performative allyship, whereas in fact they're not actually doing anything to, you know, to to support the communities. I, I think yes, yeah, <laughs> sorry. I think what what could be done is like you were saying previously with with with, with within this conversation, is gender neutral bathrooms would you know would be incredible because again like like the conversation surrounding that at the moment they are just bathrooms we are we are just people i think again like you were saying having that pronoun box so then so it's, it's not made a big a big deal out of when when somebody has to ask you your pronouns um or even being misgendered which you know can sometimes still happen to quite a lot of people unfortunately i think as well not to be performative is going to be very, very difficult for hospitals and, you know, therapists and, and, and psychiatrists to be able to do because they have good intentions. But again, it's key, it's having that longevity. So how long can we keep can we you know, keep that form? Will it work in, in the long run? Will gender neutral bathrooms work in the long run? Is are there going to be policies and procedural changes that will enable that? that's longevity for the LGBTQ plus community to, to feel comfortable within hospitals. So I think that's where we really need to make that change is in, is in the policies and the procedures to ensure the longevity of the changes put in place. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. And I'm, and I'm glad you agreed about the sort of the gender neutral bathroom side of things. You know, a lot of bathrooms just have the word toilet on them. But if you just change that to actually explicitly say they're gender neutral, that's a powerful message with no change in infrastructure or change in the way that the room is used in any way, shape or form. Um, and I think that the performative nature thing you say, yes, I agree. Um, and there's a lot of companies that are using sort of rainbow lanyards and things like that. And they're giving them out to staff without any realisation of what that symbol means. Um, one of the best examples that I had experience with, just as a, a person that signed up to it, there was a, a thing called the Rainbow Badge Project that was started by a paediatrician up in London. And the idea was this is a rainbow NHS badge that's now, you know, lots of people wear. But it started out as something that you needed to sign up and pledge to be a, an ally. And there was actually something meaningful you needed to sign up to in order to be able to wear one of those things. Um, so you needed to be able to do that. Otherwise, you weren't given one. And I think that was that was not performative, unlike what some of these lanyards and stuff can be at the moment, where it feels like a bit of an empty gesture sometimes. Um, and I think my other question to you, Cole, if that's all right, is about some of the labels. So particularly the labels of, of gender dysphoria and gender identity disorder. 
because from meeting people, I, I hear a lot of different opinions about what those labels mean to different people. Some people that I've spoken to think that they're important because they actually are the thing that gives you access. If you're diagnosed with something, then that gives you access to support and it gives you a framework and a structure. Other people feel that they're stigmatising and medicalising something that doesn't need to be medicalised. Um, and I find it's quite an individual thing from speaking to different people. So in terms of the label of gender dysphoria, gender identity disorder, unfortunately, within the current system as it is, um, you do have to have a, um, a diagnosis of gender dysphoria from the, from the gender clinic or, or if you're seeing a, a private gender clinic. There are many, many loopholes within the GIC that you that you do have to jump through. So even now, being almost five years on hormones, you know, I'm two years uh, post top surgery. I still feel that whenever I go to the GIC or have a, a Zoom meeting now, which they are doing, which is fantastic for, for accessibility, I still feel that I have to over masculinize myself to ensure that you know they don't change their mind you know that anxiety of them taking back this this diagnosis that that was given to me because of the experiences that I had had throughout my entire life but it's also a topic of conversation at the moment about gender dysphoria is that needed to be transgender and you know there are there are many many arguments on on both sides but you know what i feel is that you you know if you feel that there is something different you know, that you feel that you are, you know, that you don't want to conform to society, then that itself, you know, you don't need to have dysphoria. You just need to feel that you don't want to conform to femininity or, or to masculinity. And that's something that's been built over, you know, hundreds of years, um, which is especially, you know, non-binary and genderqueer people. They are the ones who are especially having to jump through these loopholes in order to get that care from the gender clinics which which you know is is you know is awful to hear these stories you know we I see it every single day on the forums that, that I'm in or, or within the, the circles of friends that I'm in you know there's people who are non-binary who have to over masculinize themselves or or overly feminize themselves just to ensure that they get the hormones that they need or they get that that top surgery that they really really want so I still think even within the progress that we have made in regards to being transgender within and and the medical journey that that comes with that for, for some people, not all, is that it is still a very tick box saying, yes, you want to be hairy. Yes, you want a beard. Yes, you want to have top surgery. Um, yes, you want to take testosterone. It still feels like that sometimes that you have to tick all these boxes to ensure that you get a diagnosis. But times are changing. Things are getting different. You know, there are people out there who've gone into gender clinics saying, I don't want to take hormones, but I would really like to have um, top surgery because I feel dysphoria towards my chest. Or there's people going in and saying, I'm having social dysphoria. Um, I don't want any medical treatment, but I'd really like to talk to some somebody about why I'm feeling this social anxiety surrounding my gender. So the tides are turning, but we there is still a long way to go. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, no, thank you, Carl. Thank you, Carl. So that was uh, that was a really, really in-depth. Thank you.
Paul, is there anything that you would like to ask Dr. Elliot? Just a couple of questions. So as I kind of touched on, uh, within, you know, earlier on within the conversation, LGBTQ plus mental health is very complex, but so is, you know, a lot of other people's. Um, however, do you believe that there should be a specific training on LGBTQ plus mental health and history and matters within your own development and training? Yes, absolutely, I do. Um, I'm actually because in because I, I train in Oxford um, and I'm doing a talk in a couple of weeks time as part of LGBTQ plus history month for our trust in a few weeks on the history of, of homosexuality and psychiatry and, and, and how it shaped over the years and how it's got to where we are now. Um, because, you know, history shapes where we are now and that can be said for every part of medicine, law, religion, every part of society. We are a product of of, of decades and, and, and longer of experience. And I think that we haven't always been on the right side of history with regards to psychiatry's attitudes towards, you know, uh, the LGBTQ plus community. And I think an understanding of that from the staff's end would help people empathise with the patient end and some of the difficulties that they might be going through with things. And I think just as a lot of patients that I've met, and I think you, you spoke about the same thing, feel a bit worried about being open about their, their gender identity or their, their sexual identity. Um, because of what people are going to say and how that's going to be handled. I think a lot of staff are worried about asking about it because they don't quite know what to do with the answer or they're worried about putting their foot in it and saying something wrong and all of these things. So it ends up becoming this sort of elephant in the room that nobody acknowledges um, and, and that doesn't really help anybody. So yes, I think that I think that looking at our history and how we've got to where we are now is is really important. And that could equally be said for um, other marginalised groups as well. So understanding refugees experience, people from from different ethnic backgrounds as well. Um, I think that could be translatable to lots of different marginalised groups um, where we know that rates of mental illness are, are higher than the general community. Perfect. That is all of my questions. Thank you so much. No problem. Thank you. A huge thank you to Dr Elliot Carthy and Cole for sharing their stories so openly with us and helping us to honour LGBT plus history month here at the college. If you would like further resources on LGBT plus mental health then please head to our website www.rcpsych.ac.uk, go to the members tab at the top of the screen and select Rainbow SIG. Thank you for listening.